0: DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from Dr. Lillis' lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's an author of several books, including Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation on Prayer, and Fire from Above. Christian Contemplation, and Mystical Wisdom. In this particular series of conversations, we'll focus on the spiritual writings of St. Teresa of Avila, and in particular, her autobiography. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. In Chapter 2, as she's discussing the effects of, you know, the bad friendship, possibly the reading that she's doing, She begins to talk about the experience of feeling very anxious about her behavior, so much so that she will talk about her father, who loved her so much, but he did not see what was happening with her, and she felt as though she was deceiving him in a particular practice, and that she... Did this realizing that he believed nothing but good about her. And this really kind of haunted her, didn't it? <laughs> that she was just so concerned about her good name that that was the only thing that kept her from falling off into a deeper, darker place.
1: Yeah. She talks about things that one of her friends brought in. So another way to protect the home is who you let your kids spend a lot of time with. And there are social situations where. You know, you don't can't control every single thing that happens. but but you do kind of want to be vigilant about the time your children spend with other kids that you know don't quite have the same values that you're trying to promote because they're going to introduce things that will undermine you as a parent. and and so how how do you do this? So she's talking about the struggle to learn virtue. She's talking about the influence of a bad friend. And so the fact that she's deceiving her father, if I had to advise parents, I would tell them to take care about the people with whom their children associate at such age. Much harm may result from bad company, and we are inclined by nature to follow the worse rather than the better. And that was the case for me. So she had a sister, I'm much older than myself, from whom though she was very good and chaste, I learned nothing. Whereas from a relative, whom we often had in the house, I learned every kind of evil. From this person, she picked up a habit of kind of frivolous conversation. And the mother had prevented it, but this friend kind of ignited it in her to chat and gossip and talk about uh, things that are not edifying. And she became very fond of her. She developed an attachment. I talked and gossiped with her frequently. She joined me in all my favorite pastimes, and she also introduced me to other pastimes and talked to me about all her conversations and vanities. Until I knew her, this was when I was 14, perhaps more. By knowing her, I mean becoming friendly with her and receiving her competences. I do not think I had ever forsaken God by committing any mortal sin or lost my fear of God, though I was much more concerned about my honor this fear was strong enough to prevent me from forfeiting my honor altogether. And I cannot think that I would have acted differently about this or anything in the world. So she has a deep sense of honor. That kind of sense of honor for any dads who are listening, your presence in your sons and daughters' life builds up in them a sense of honor that they don't want to betray. And the presence of a father blesses them with a sense of honor in a way that nobody else can. And she has had such a father love her. And so this is a great gift. But she says, I might have had the strength not to sin against the honor of God as my natural inclination led me not to go astray in anything which I thought concerned worldly honor. And I did not realize that I was forfeiting my honor in many other ways. I went to great extremes in my vain anxiety about this. Though I took not the slightest trouble, about what I must do to live a truly honorable life. So she was so worried about losing her honor. She described earlier in the text, if you read it, about concern about her appearance, and she was fastidious over it. And so she wanted to be an evil, but she didn't want her reputation harmed. She wanted to protect her honor, but she was maybe more concerned about losing it than how to protect it, what you can do to raise it up.
0: I was just going to say, that's such an interesting paradigm, isn't it? What's our motivation? And even for this, and I say this in all due respect, for this kid, because this is what she is at this point. She's a teenage girl, probably not much older, am I correct, than what her mother was when her mother married. For her to have this desire to want to not lose her honor, but not, and it wasn't because the opposite where she wanted to live a life of virtue. She just didn't want the consequences of not living the life of virtue. Am I I being fair in that?
1: See, that's, there's a journey here. I think in the beginning, she had a really powerful sense of honor before she met this friend, and for her own sake, for, you know, she wanted to protect it. And then after she meets this friend, the friend is introducing all this vanity and gossip and fastidiousness and And she gets caught up in it and she's euphoric about it. And so she goes from a deep sense of honor to losing a little more and a little more and a little more. And she even describes at the end of the paragraph through my discussions with this woman, it changed me so much that I lost nearly all my soul's natural inclination to virtue and was greatly influenced by her and by another person who indulged in the same kind of pastime. Now more friends are getting together and she's gotten caught up in this. And so one thing kind of leads to another, and she's on a pathway that's a very dangerous pathway. She says, Later, when fear of God had entirely left me, I retained only this concern for my honor, which was a torture to me in everything I did. When I thought that nobody would ever know, I would rash enough to do many things which were an offense both to my honor and to God. And so the ways that she is betraying her honor, you know, before she wouldn't betray it at all. Now she's betraying it in secret. And so this introduces kind of a secrecy, that kind of secrecy that children, this is part of what happens in childhood, can be so damaging. And, and so how, how as parents do we protect children from this kind of thinking? Well, her overall advice is watch the friends children keep. Your children's friends will have an impact on them in this area that as a parent, no matter how good you are, you can't have in the same way. This doesn't mean never letting your children have friends, but just kind of being aware of what's going on in the friendship, kind of uh, attending to the things that are unfolding in it. She says, At first I believe these things did me harm. The fault was not my friends, but my own. For subsequently my own wickedness sufficed to lead me into sin. And then she started doing goofy things with her servants. So do you see how she went from bad to worse? And she's caught up in it. She didn't have a sense that the bad thing she was doing was wrong, she says. But notice what she said earlier on. She would do these things in secret. (laughs) So she was hiding them, but she didn't think they were wrong. And that kind of tells you, uh, not only for children, but for ourselves, when we feel like we need to hide something, usually there's something there, but we don't think it's wrong. Usually there's something there that we have to kind of look at that's that's dangerous for our hearts. And once we get to this stage of the chapter, this part of the chapter, this is where she talks about the deception of her father. He always, and this is a powerful thing, and I think it's true for parenting, his he always thought the best of his daughter. And he held her to his highest esteem. I had a very dear friend who had this attitude towards his children. His children have all grown up and done wonderful things in life. His name was David Warner. He's deceased now, but he, for a short time, was a president of a small Catholic college up in Canada. When he set, told his children if they did something that Wasn't virtuous. He said this with such sincerity, it cut so deep into the heart. He would say, I'm surprised at you. And the surprise was genuine. And that was, you know, he didn't get upset and jump up and down. I'm surprised at you. Well, why was that such a powerful thing? Because the children all knew how highly he regarded and treasured each one of them. And they didn't want to disappoint him. And that dynamic is a very powerful thing to bring into parenting a good father sees the good in his child believes in that good and is surprised by can't believe that you know the child has done something wrong he doesn't excuse he doesn't condone, condone. he lets himself be very indeed surprised by it but even when he's surprised by it he never stops believing and the goodness of his son and daughter. And if you think about that, that's the way God the Father is with us. He sees our sin. He's willing to pay the price of the sin because the good that he sees in us, he believes that in that truth more than our wickedness. And so he will do whatever he needs to do, including having his son come and suffer all our hostility towards him unto the cross. He does it believing that the goodness with which he created us is worth saving because he, he loves the truth of who we really are and he sees the truth of who we really are. Well, Teresa's father is like this. I, I had made the greatest effort to keep it all secret and I had not considered that it would not be kept secret from him who sees all things. She's talking about the father. Oh my God, what harm is done in the world by forgetfulness of this and by the belief that anything can be kept secret which is done against thee I am sure that much wrongdoing would be avoided if we realized that our business is to be on our guard not against men but against displeasing thee. because her father believes in her he's mediating the presence of God the Father it doesn't solve the problem right there and then But what it does do is later on in life, when she's able to look back at this, she reinterprets the whole thing. The father's expectations and belief in her in the face of her secrecy is not an extrinsic thing that was being unfairly hoisted upon her that she needed to avoid. Her father's love was speaking intrinsically to the deepest truths of her heart. And the reason why her father's love was able to do this is because that's the way God relates to us. He sees when we sacrifice our honor because he also believes in the goodness that he's created us to become. And he's going to not let go of that belief, but he's going to do everything he possibly can when he beholds that to rescue us from that. And this is what happens with her.
0: That's a very powerful experience for a young woman to have. What a gift within the context of that family.
1: Yeah, she talks about her conscience begins to, to get a hold of her.
0: We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts.
1: St. Teresa speaks to us today, saying,
0: Let nothing disturb you, let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. God alone suffices.
1: O God, who through your Spirit raised up St. Teresa of Jesus to show the Church the way to seek perfection, grant that we may always be nourished by the food of her heavenly teaching and fired with longing for true holiness. To our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. St. Teresa, pray for us
0: that we may become worthy of the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless.
0: We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. That's good too. I mean, you and I are both parents. Wouldn't, Wouldn't that be great that, you know, we call having children, knowing that that's what we hope that kind of love that would Can I say it? Kick in.
1: And so this is another thing that Teresa's parents did well and that helped her through this period of her life. She's going to actually go to an Augustinian convent. Her father's going to send her there to kind of protect her from the influence of these friends who are causing her to betray her honor. And he believes in her and loves her, but he wants to put her in a safer environment. And she, she says about that experience, The first week I suffered a great deal, though not so much from being in the convent, as from the suspicion that everyone knew about my vanity. For I had already become tired of the life that I had been leading, and even when I offended God, I would never ceased to be sorely afraid of Him, and tried to make my confessions as soon as possible after falling into sin. This is the part that I think is so important. Because Don Alonso had fostered in his home a culture where going to frequent confession was normalized, it strengthened Teresa's conscience so that as she, her conscience became more and more uneasy with the decisions and the deception she was living, she had a way to deal with it in grace in the sacrament of confession. And frequent confession children seeing their parents go to confession, having access to confession, this is a huge tool in helping with moral development. The key is to develop it, a sensitive conscience, a conscience that is ready to affirm you when you do the good things and a conscience that's able to accuse you when you don't do the right things and a conscience that's able to guide you before you do anything. In know, book, confession helps with this and I think this is one of the reasons she begins, as she gets into a better environment, she begins to come out of it. Chris, I don't know about in your own household and preparing for First Communions, but I thought that when I raised my own family, this time of their life was a critical time precisely because they, for the first time in their lives, were having to deal with the reality of sin and learning to confess it and prepare themselves for Holy Communion. I think these are helps in their in their spiritual life.
0: It can be difficult, can it Anthony for parents in some ways, and I say this again in all reverence to those who are listening. I'm not trying to judge people, but it sure can be difficult to give something you don't have. You may want it, you may desire it for your children. but it sounds like Don Alonzo, in how he and his wife prior you know before her death, I mean, they must have modeled it um, strongly. It must have been so pervasive in the household. Is that a conclusion I shouldn't be leaping to, or do you think that's accurate?
1: I think it's very accurate. And what you just challenged us to as parents is this whole reality of living out the faith with greater devotion is actually going to make empower us as parents to. Keeper homes is a sacred place. Matt Feeney is a thinker here in the Bay Area. He wrote a book called Little Platoons, and he's talking about family life. And he's—I uh, don't think he's Catholic. He, anyway, he got married as happens out here in California outside, and they wrote their own vows. And and even though for us as Catholics, we we see the world, you know, we have all this body of teaching. His attitude towards his household was is a very noble attitude it his the, he he re- writes about the uh, the vow he made to his wife was to fend her honor and defend the house with his life's blood he will spend his life's blood defending the home and keeping it safe for his wife and his children he promises to do this to his wife on their wedding day well that attitude that awareness that what is on the outside of the home is not necessarily friendly to what's inside the home and we need to be vigilant about it and we need to be committed to being vigilant about that that's a good natural virtue beautiful virtue our faith gives us access to another kind of virtue if we're going to confession and we're receiving holy communion and we're practicing prayer especially like prayer the rosary together as a family We're taking up these practices, praying that rosary together each day or part of a rosary or reading a little scriptures or some combination of all of those things. The children grow up in a prayerful, protected home. They have space for the sacred, space to be innocent. Their consciences develop. And as their conscience develop, they're going to get out into the world and they're going to have to deal with a lot of complexities that we can't even imagine because our culture is changing so much but they will have the foundation to do it, and they'll have a sense of the sacred that you have passed on because of your hard work that will stay in their hearts regardless of what they choose for the rest of their lives. All of this begins, Chris, with what you've just said. We need to make our faith the priority. We need to enter into the discipline of our Christian way of life, which then requires embracing penance through going to confession, times of prayer fed by the Holy Eucharist, Eucharistic devotion, and awareness of Christ's presence in our life, fasting, little acts of asceticism, all of these things protect what's sacred in our home and help form the hearts of our children.
0: It also is very compelling in Chapter 3 of The Life of St. Teresa that the influence of single religious Whoever that might be, others out in the world who are living a life that can convey a joy of faith and just compassionating. I'm thinking of the nun who would tell stories at the school that she would be sent to at. Correct me, Anthony, is it a school or a boarding
1: facility? It's kind of a boarding situation. Okay. She's brought there, and that's my understanding of it, she's brought there to the convent to kind of live with the sisters. I think they have a kind of place for young ladies. And so this shelters her quite a bit from some of the other influences she was on. And and you're right, uh, even in Chapter 2, she already begins to write about what a good influence just being around these religious. At first, she spoke about an aversion to religious life as she was watching the sisters. But after time and seeing their joy and so forth, the idea begins to enter into her her mind that there's something more beautiful to live for than the silliness that she was engaged in before. So beautiful seeds are planted. And so, yeah, chapter 3 begins, I began to enjoy the good and holy conversation with this nun. I grew to delight in listening to her, for she spoke well about God and was very discreet and holy. There was never any time, I think, when I did not delight in listening to her words she began to tell me how she had come to be a nun. Through merely reading those words in the gospel, many are called, but few are chosen. She used to describe to me the reward which the Lord gives to those who leave everything for his sake. Now, it's really interesting. Just as a bad friendship had inclined her to vice, this good friendship is going to open up a whole world of virtue for her. Good companionship, good conversation is something that is not only healing for our humanity, but necessary so that it can grow into maturity. And, and so when the, uh, Don Alonso sent his daughter here, he was trying to protect her, but he gave her an even greater gift by exposing her to people who are happy with her vocation and, and able to connect with her. And when a a woman connects with another and is able to show the world of faith and goodness and truth, there's an attractiveness to it. And that began to swell up in her heart. So this is part of how good companionship wakens up in her heart a deep desire for the Lord.
0: I think this says a lot, too, about the unnamed nun who had such an influence on her, imagine her encounter with what may have been a precocious teenager, possibly, who was sent to this boarding school, who didn't necessarily think this was going to be something that would touch her life, and yet this, I keep going back, the unnamed nun who would touch her so deeply was conversing with someone who would become a doctor of the church, the first female doctor of the church. We just never know, right? I mean, we just never know who, you know, if we just respond in love and joy and in virtue and fidelity, you just never know what the outcome is going to be someday.
1: Well, this is the thing of, you know, we've talked about the sanctity of the home or keeping the home sacred. We talked about. The development of conscious being uh, your conscience, and how a bad friend can influence your conscience in a bad way, but a good friend can open it up to a whole world of values. And once that's been done, once somebody's heart's been opened to a world of values, now they can begin to discern their vocation. And she's in a place where, right now, in chapter three, at the beginning of chapter three, she's still afraid of religious life. She's still not sure that that's what she's called to. She's also afraid of marriage, but she can begin to think about how she's going to give her life because she's around somebody who has given her life. And once you've been around a generous soul who's kind of stepped out and boldly embraced life and learned how to give the gift of themselves, whether in marriage or in religious life, once you meet somebody like that, Now seeds are planted, and God can begin to speak into your heart about your vocation. And so it's, as you say, Chris, a very important time for her formation occurred here. There are other things that get planted here. She's in this convent for about a year and a half. And while she's there, she learns to pray. She learns vocal prayers, uh, which she begins to recite every day. She reads an account of the Passion she begins to realize that when she prays or reads an account of the passion, she ought to cry and she experiences that she doesn't. And so she kind of knows that something's going on in the prayer of other people that is not going on in my heart. And that's planting a seed for her. It's planting an important seed. As she goes through this period of time, she makes a transition. She's afraid of marriage. She's a, She doesn't want to be that as she's around these sisters the desire to be a nun grows slowly little by little and it implants itself in her heart because of the very virtuous practices which i had come to hear that they observed and which seemed to me altogether excessive she was not going to join in that house it was too strict there were however a few younger ones who encouraged me in this feeling if all nuns had to be of one opinion it would have to be much better for me. I also had a close friend in another convent. This gave me the idea that if I was a nun, I would go only to the house where she was. I thought more about pleasures of sense and vanity than those of the soul's prophet. And so, boy, you get a whole thing going on here. She sees the strictness. These are Augustinian sisters. She sees their strictness. And by today's standards, they were very strict. One of the things that when we're reading this literature from the 16th century that as modern people, we're not connected with, in the 16th century, they had a powerful sense of sin and grace. Whether you were Protestant or Catholic, you had an awareness that you needed to be saved. And so religious houses that were a little bit more strict at that time, that awareness of the need of my own salvation Kind of is heightened for her. The idea of religious life looks good right now, but she also wants to hang on to friendships, and so she's dealing with something impure in her life, discerning her life's vocation. And because of that impurity, the possibility of the life that she could have had in the where she was going to school is close to her. I don't want to live a life that strict. My friend's going to this other convent, I want to go over there at any rate. This is a good struggle to have. It's a very healthy thing to have go on that she's able to recount the journey on a vocation. It involves a lot of purification and this purification will lead her to enter religious life, but it will continue after she enters her vocation even more.
0: We'll continue this conversation in our next episode. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray. With Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or on whatever platform you obtain your podcasts. There too, you can also listen to an audio version of the complete autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Willis.